madrugada já rompeu Você vai me abandonar Eu sinto que o perdão você não mereceu Eu quis a ilusão, agora dor sou eu Madrugada já rompeu Você vai me abandonar Eu sinto que o perdão você não mereceu Eu quis a ilusão Agora do sou eu Pobre de quem não entendeu que a beleza de amar está E só querendo pedir, nunca soube o que é perder pra encontrar Eu sei que é preciso perdoar Foi você quem me ensinou que um homem como eu que tem só sabe o que é sofrer Se o pranto se acabar Madrugada
Good morning, everybody. You are listening to Listen Local, and uh, I am Julian Mark, your host. Um, and I am here with um, Aleka Kreutsch, uh, reporting intern with Mission Local. Good morning, Aleka. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. Um, so, Aleka, you went out with several reporters mm -hmm. and uh, did a count of um, the homeless population. Yes. Um, <laughs> when, when, uh, when was that? Um, that was last week. And so what did you find? I, I mean, you know, our report obviously found that, you know, there were 261 um, homeless people living in the heart of the mission area, the heart of District 9, mm -hmm. and, you know, there were 70 tents. But, um, I mean, I, you know, I was sitting at a desk while you were doing that, mm -hmm. um, and you were out with two other reporters doing it. I mean, what was it like, you know, going out there? And I know that you don't really live in um, in San Francisco. So, mm -hmm. I mean, what, you know, sort of immediately stuck out to you? Um, well, first, I thought it was really interesting, the stark differences between the different, like, avenues or streets. Like, for example, um, so we covered between um, Alabama and Dolores, and then between um, Cesar Chavez and all the way down to the freeway. And when you got closer to the mission... Um, there were a lot more people, and then the same on Valencia, but the second that you went towards uh, Dolores um, from Valencia, it was really just like this residential neighborhood that was extremely cleaned up. There was like like no trash on the streets, just like it kind of almost seemed suburban. I talked to um, a security guard at one of the uh, private oh. schools, mm -hmm. and he said that in the five years he'd worked there, he'd only seen one homeless person. Um, so I don't know, the different like environments of the different streets that were just directly next to each other were really, really surprising to me. Well, I mean, it's kind of interesting that it was a security guard who told that to you. I mean, I mean, could it be sort of, uh, you know, implied that, you know, his presence there or, you mm -hmm. know, the fact that, you know, this area is able to hire, you know, uh, mm -hmm. private security guards has something to do with, uh, you know, a, a lack of homeless people or? Yeah, I mean, I would think so, especially because a lot of, well, a person I talked to at AT&T on Valencia Street talked about how recently... She doesn't think the homelessness has gotten better, but just a lot of the people have been pushed out of these neighborhoods and circulate around the BART system. Um, and because they're being pushed out, they spend a lot of time on the trains because they feel like that's how um, the police can't get to them. Interesting. Interesting. And is there, I mean, did you sort of figure out, uh, you know, any other reason why, you know, there's, uh, you know, these, I mean, there were pockets of, of homeless mm -hmm. people. I mean, was or did they tell you anything in that regard? Like the homeless people themselves? The homeless or? people themselves or something that you, you know, mm -hmm. that you found. I mean, was was there, you know, I mean, you don't have to say that there's mm -hmm. an answer if there wasn't one. But yeah. I mean, was there, um, you know, was there a reason behind this kind of, uh, you mm -hmm. know, this, this, this sort of stark difference? Um, I don't know an exact reason, like uh -huh. exactly why. Right, right. Um, but I would think it would be something to do with, well, the fact that they are trying to clean up these neighborhoods and like the vast gentrification that's going on, right. especially because... Well, all of the all of the houses in in that area around like the um, like the higher number of streets like twenty fourth, twenty fifth um, mm -hmm. around Dolores were just these amazing houses. Uh -huh, I don't know you've uh -huh. probably seen them with right, like right. like the like the beautiful little steeples and all of that. So I'm guessing like they're cleaning up those neighborhoods for um, the richer people that are moving in. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, you know, I, I've always heard that, um, you know, from people who kind of come from around the uh, the world, um, they come to mm -hmm. San Francisco kind of expecting this, um, you know, this beautiful, uh, mm -hmm. dreamy, idyllic place. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they are often, you know, caught off guard or, or overwhelmed, mm -hmm. you know, by by the 
the inequality here. And yeah. you, you you study uh, you study where? Um, at Dartmouth College. Dartmouth College, and and you, I mean, is there is there anything um, like that? I mean, do you do you see the, these kinds of things there as much? In New Hampshire? Yeah, New Hampshire. Well, yeah. the well, it's a college town, like right, the, of the, course, the, of So course. it's like very. Uh-huh. I don't know. It's very. It's very small, and uh-huh. there. I really haven't. I don't think I've seen any any homeless people at all in the college town itself. Right. Wow, um, that's amazing. Yeah, but New Hampshire. So yeah, that's definitely true. Um, for like a lot of wealthy people live there, um, and all the streets are very cleaned up. But there is like the opioid crisis that's in oh, New I Hampshire. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. um, like directly outside of the college town, you do see like more homeless people, and definite. I don't know. The there is a lot of like devastation in that homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you actually talked to some people while Mm. you were, while you were out. I mean, was there anybody who you talked to that, you know, was really, um, you know, that was sort of illuminating, you know, kind of Mm. wasn't, was a window into, you know, what, what this crisis is about or. Well, one of the people I talked to who I think really, I don't know, I, it really opened my eyes in in a certain way. Oh, his name was Slater. Uh Um, I met him, I think it was 19th in Valencia. Uh And Um, uh, sorry, what, what did he look like? He, um, well, he was African-American. Uh-huh. Um, he was definitely taller than me, maybe around six feet tall. Uh-huh. He had uh-huh. a beanie. Uh-huh. Um, he was missing some teeth, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but he was like always smiling. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And when I saw him on the street, he was like saying hi to every single person that passed by him. Oh, really? And I also lived in New York when I was younger. So like, okay. I feel like what I was taught was like, oh, if someone says, if like, especially like someone on the street says hi to you, you just like keep walking. Like you don't look at them. But this was like different for me because I was supposed to talk to them. That was like my job in this. So like I said hi to him. I was like happy that he said hi to me. Like, oh, great. So this should be a lot easier to not have to like approach and do all of that. And I said hi to him back. And we actually just got into this really nice conversation where he like asked me about where I worked. And Mm -hmm. I told him about um, being in college and like um, thinking about journalism. And he was just wishing me luck. Um, And he was just like a really genuine person who seemed like he just had this bright light in him um yeah and then i ran into him later i ran into him last week on thursday which was like um four or five days after i talked to him and he recognized me and he said hi and Uh he was with uh his wife uh and they were both just like walking around on valencia street um and he gave me a big hug and yeah yeah um (laughs) did 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 he did he like i mean did you he tell you anything about his backstory how he ended Mm. up in san francisco um he said he'd always been in san francisco Um, oh really yeah he his whole life um and he'd been in in and out of homelessness for a while Uh and that he'd been homeless two separate times and the first time it was for about a year um and the second time right now he's been homeless for almost five years wow wow um i'm not sure where he lives but it seems like he's being proactive he had like these mag these poetry magazines he's really excited because i told him i was interested in poetry uh-huh, and he was uh-huh. like oh like i have these poetry magazines um that um they hand out to homeless people to sell for a recommended cost of two dollars amazing um so did he give any clues as to what happened to him he didn't say he didn't um, say uh-huh. yeah he was being he kind of brushed off the question a little bit uh-huh um but yeah yeah, I'm, I'm sure, sure that's, I mean, I'm sure it's always kind of hard to talk about. And some of the other people that you spoke to, were mm-hmm. they forthcoming about what happened, ha- 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 excuse me, had happened to them? Um, I talked to a man named Marlon Muniz Cruz, mm-hmm. um, and he said that it was because his social security had been taken away. He I didn't see. really mention how. Right, right. Um, he was from Cuba. He said he'd been homeless 
um, I think he said since 1993. Wow, wow, um, wow. So that's a long time. And um, he'd been in San Francisco since then, too. I mean, you know, you kind of hear these stories and it, you know, almost is, it's amazing, like, how, you know, how easy it, it can be to, to mm-hmm. slip into homelessness, especially yeah. in a city where, where rent is, is is so, you know, absolutely high. And... Yeah, yeah. I know that one of the um, the other reporters who went out, Abe, he uh-huh. um, met a man who was a veteran who said that, he well he'd gotten beaten in the head by four guys and he had some memory problems and then he was in an sro and then eight months wow. ago he just well because of his memory problems i presume he forgot to respond to a letter and because of that he was evicted and now he's homeless so the, the fact that it's just that easy right is just really baffling and, yeah you know, it's kind of scary right and scary yeah well, you know, you know, I find that, you, you know, you also, you, you just, you know, didn't, you know, you weren't born in New Hampshire, you weren't born, uh, <laughs> where you, where, uh, you didn't spend your childhood in the United States. Um, you spent no. it in Mumbai, is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess, could you just tell me a little bit about Mumbai? And, you know, it seems mm-hmm. like it's a, it's a major, uh, commercial hub. It's a yeah. huge, massive city of like two, yeah. 22 million people. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, as I understand it, there's, uh, you know, a lot of inequality there. What mm-hmm. could you just describe what that inequality, you know, looks like? Yeah. So. Mo- oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. No. Like how um, okay. how how long did you live there? So I lived there from when I was eight to when I was 18. So wow. 10 years. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Um, my mom's Indian. So that was kind of the reason why we moved there. Uh-huh. Um, and it was nice to have that that center in my life, too. But right. anyway, uh-huh. so Mumbai, it's like the heart of Bollywood, which is like the Hollywood of India. Um, and it's really like the economic, one of the economic machines of India. So people come there from everywhere, from the villages to find work. Um, it's, well, the streets, like you'll find these little, like, um, like samosa shops and like little, like mm-hmm. really cheap restaurants. And then you'll find like the big chains, like you'll you have McDonald's, you have right. like these fancy you know, like gourmet restaurants, like right next to each other. Um, and then it has the second biggest slum in Asia, uh, Dharavi, um, which has, well, 60% of Mumbai's population lives in the slums. And what do the so. slums look like? I mean, is it, are they, are they actual homes? Are they, you know, mm-hmm. just built out of corrugated metal and people are... Mm-hmm. Really... Well, they depend, it depends because some of them um, are just made out of cardboard and then kind of a tin roof. Wow, um, but wow. some of them are concrete. Uh-huh. Um, there, there's some slums are on like government property and are like, um, like, or like they're, they have permits, but a lot of them don't. Right. So it really depends on the slum. Like in Dharavi, there's like so many different like neighborhoods to the slums. Like, I don't know. It's interesting because people come from their villages to live in the slums. Um, and they find their community of people who also came from their villages. Okay. So I think in that way, they kind of have like a support system and a safety net when mm-hmm. they come even right. without a home. Right. So and and also people do pay rent for the slum sometimes. So like if it's like an organized slum, there's like a, a smaller rent that they do pay. Uh-huh, so they uh-huh. it, there's kind of this like like in between um, in Mumbai. Like it, you you don't have to be on the street. Like there is like kind of a alternative and like a fine line between being on the street and having this like kind of temporary or less temporary home. So poverty in Mumbai is arguably a different sort of story mm-hmm. than it is in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I saw, you know, I think we both, you know, before our show, we're talking about this, you know, kind of amazing number. I mean, you know, I, I read online that, you know, 50, there are 54,000 uh, homeless mm-hmm. people in, in yeah. Mumbai and you, but you read, uh, you know, perhaps a higher number, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I read that local activists, that the census number said that it was 54,000, but local activists believe it's somewhere between 150,000 and 300,000. Thousand, which is just 
yeah that, I mean is that believable to you having having lived there oh or? definitely like walking on the streets like it's always crowded like it's very very rare to get to a street where right, there's just right. one or two people like that uh -huh, would be just uh -huh, creepy right um and you do see some people on the streets like alone but like most people like if you if you're driving or walking around like you see entire families under highways like it's the children it's the mom the dad extended families they're cooking um and the magnitude is just so much bigger like and people talk about um i don't know i i don't necessarily have it when people talk about it's like that it's happier because yes like i mean i can't imagine how difficult it must be but it's true that there is like kind of a safety net in a community that comes along with it i see so, so like walking around in san francisco i saw a lot of people alone which is i mean you see some of that in mumbai but a lot less like most people i saw actually were on their own um most of them male but in Mumbai, you'd see like entire families there together. So. That's amazing. I, I mean, when you know, in the, in the families that you see, and you know, the, these these groups of of people, you know, uh, homeless individuals, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you see out outside. I mean, are they? Is that different than the than the poverty and I guess the mm -hmm. quote unquote homelessness that you would sort of find in the slum? Is that correct? Or mm -hmm. um, in the slum, I mean. I think that a lot of them are the same people and maybe oh, I think that, well, because I know that <clears throat> there's just a whole, I don't exactly know how it works, but mm -hmm. I know that there's like a slum lord who kind of like rules over the rents. So I'm, oh, I'm sure see. like you could get in, you could get pushed out, um, but they are like similar types of people. So like, I don't know. So in, in my household, for example, mm -hmm. we had, mm -hmm. so like pretty much most people middle class and above could hire a lot of staff. Like you have like a driver or you have like someone to come and do the cooking just because there are so many people and so many people that are in need of jobs. So like the person who worked at my house, Siva, he was our the person who operated our car, so our driver. He lived in Theravi with his entire village. Um, and I don't know, he obviously like he, he wasn't like the typical, I don't know, like quote unquote homeless person that you'd imagine. He wore like a button up shirt. Right. He wore, right, right. Um, you know, like a, a nice like suit. Um, but I'm sure like when you go into, um, I don't know, I've been into Theravi. And it is, I don't know, it is much different than you imagine, like really crammed houses, like next to each other, tiny doors, um, like wires hanging, um, and just like an entire operation of things. Like there's like a hospital in the slum, there's a school. And I think that, um, I don't know, I'd assume that the people who are on the streets in Mumbai would be a little bit worse off. Uh, some of them don't have, I mean, or I don't know how much worse off, but some of them don't have clothes. And you see them like defecating on the street sometimes. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, but yeah, I'm not sure where that line is drawn. But. Interesting. So, but the main, so, you know, you kind of hinted at it earlier, but the main difference, you know, what is the difference between mm -hmm. homelessness in Mumbai and yeah. the homelessness in San Francisco? Mm -hmm. I think it really has to do with the community that um, exists in the homelessness in Mumbai, like the... Um, the fact that people have like entire villages of people that they knew or know and connections and they can come to that and kind of work their way up from there. And it's an informal thing. Like right, it's not right. like it's organized in any way. Like it's not like this is like a program set up by the government, but that exists. Whereas in a, a lot of the people I see, I saw on the street um, the last couple of weeks were alone um, a lot. And in India, there's just so much poverty that a lot of people were just born into that. I'm sure that's true in the U.S. too. But right, right. I think most people maybe were even just born into that. I see. Um, so it's not like they had any kind of like 
mental illness or um, or addiction. Not saying that people here definitely do, but I think that there is, or at least more of a stigma that that's the case. And right. I think that less of that stigma exists in Mumbai, like believing that because someone is homeless, they must be a drug addict I or see. they must have mental illness. I mean, are there, uh, you know, obviously there's, you know, a, a larger, uh, you know, social safety net for these mm-hmm. people. I mean, it, not social safety net on like, you know, they have family members, they have, you know, a community, there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's less, you know, people who are wandering around, you know, on, mm-hmm. on their own. Does does the city of Mumbai or um, or the the Indian government have um, social services to, to help some of these people? Mm-hmm. Or are they kind of left to their own sort of devices? I think I would think that they were left to their own devices. But mm-hmm. there is like, well, the government in, in Mumbai is very corrupt. So a lot of the corruption stems from the fact that uh, the police do have the power to push them out whenever. Uh-huh. Right, right. So there's a lot of like bribery that happens to like help them stay oh, interesting. in these places. So like they sometimes people do get pushed out. Um, but I think that what the police do is more of like, oh, like give me this and I'll let you stay here uh-huh. so that they're not pushed out. I mean, is there, you know, with with, you know, 50,000 to perhaps 200,000 um, homeless people in, in Mumbai. Um, I mean, is there, you know, a sense of urgency that it's that it's a crisis at all? Or is it sort of, I mean, here, we, you know, everybody, I think, mm-hmm. you know, especially, you know, homeowners uh, in mm-hmm. San Francisco, you know, bemoan, you know, yeah. the homeless crisis uh, in San Francisco, as do, you know, tourists and, you know, just, I guess, regular people. But I mm-hmm. mean, is there is there that sense of urgency or that sense, mm-hmm. you know, that there is a crisis? Uh, going on in Mumbai or well I think that there are a lot of NGOs that like Uh proclaim it a crisis and say like this must be changed but it's also just I don't know I think it is kind of embraced more as like a way of life and a way that things are um I hope that I mean I would hope that there would be some kind of plan to at least make their lives better I, I don't know but I there is less talk about it being this crisis and yeah Oh, that, I think that's true. Yeah, that's incredible. Well, um, yeah. thank you so much for, uh, yeah, you know, for you. for telling us about this. Is there any thoughts that you would like to, you know, share about, you know, um, any additional, you know, sort of, you know, insights mm-hmm. about, you know, what is sort of, you know, driving this? Any sort of any sort of trends that that you kind of found out, uh, you know, along doing this that you'd like to add? Um, I don't know. One thing that I think I thought was interesting at the beginning was just, I don't know, I felt uncomfortable going out just because I felt like, how am I supposed to judge who's homeless and who's not? And mm-hmm. how am, I don't know all of the, I don't know, I know like the stereotype of what I imagine to be a homeless person, which I don't know, I almost wish I didn't. But mm-hmm. I, it was just, I thought that it would be difficult to judge who was, who wasn't. And it was uncomfortable going around and, I don't know, noting people down and trying to figure it out. So I don't know, I thought that that was, it was a really... um interesting experience yeah well thank you so much for coming on yeah, uh, that was a, you. you know really interesting to, to hear about uh, yeah, up next uh, no problem <laughs> up, up next we have um a segment by uh, a preview uh, segment by uh, another uh, reporting intern with mission local uh, ricky rodas um this might be a temporary uh, segment on listen local uh, as ricky has um uh, produced a number of audio pieces so uh stay tuned in the, in the next few uh, in the next few minutes for uh, ricky rodas reports how to do what you and your family do. You give them ingredients, amounts, and directions for producing something that you know how to make in your bones. That's food writer and cookbook author Chris Ying, standing on a dimly lit stage while facing a crowd of hundreds. 
He explains that recipes are more than just blueprints for a delicious meal. Recipes are our best attempt at quantifying and transmitting culture. Ying was the first of 12 speakers to take the stage for La Cocina's biannual event, F&B, Voices from the Kitchen. The theme was recipes, and the night of spoken word performances was held at the Brava Theater in early June. La Cocina is a nonprofit organization in the mission that helps low-income entrepreneurs develop a business plan for their dream restaurants. The line of attendees wrapped around the block, eager to get in and hear these chefs and writers speak. I knew so little about this event that I didn't know I was actually getting a book. I already have the book. Attendee Tim Kim mentions the La Cocina cookbook each guest received at the door. It's a nonprofit's first and is made entirely of recipes from their food incubator program participants. I'm a big foodie. I love food, but I love the mission of it. It's just something that we need to kind of support the future voices. It's the easiest donation one I could ever make a month. So. Attendees were treated to drinks and food provided by La Cucina graduates. Chef Adriana Law handed out tasty taquitos covered in sweet and spicy pumpkin mole. Law also shared the story of her family's beloved mole recipe with the crowd. Our family culinary oracle, Tia Connie, passed away four years ago. I remember her through my commitment to mastering her recipes. In my freezer, I have a container with her infamous mole, the last batch she made. I will never eat it. Those are my roots. By the time I took on the project to master and script my family recipes, my tia had lost her hearing. She nonetheless dictated the recipes to me over the phone via a relative. I took notes. Other speakers told stories of their own memorable family recipes. Animator and illustrator Monique Ray talked about her Jamaican grandmother, who would give her Cersei a herbal tea widely regarded in Jamaica as a cure-all. There was only one problem. Even after adding honey or your sweetener of choice, agave, I'm into it, whatever you want to add to it, it's still probably the worst thing I've ever tasted in my entire life. No matter what medical problem Monique had, she still gave me Cersei. It even got to the point where I thought to myself, what is a non-Cersei treatable condition I can come up with? <laughs> According to Mama, none exists. The crowd was especially excited to see Bernadine Swole, a.k.a. Pinky Winchester, nicknamed after her bright pink hair, award herself a trophy for the second best chicken sandwich in Berkeley. The first prize winner of the chicken sandwich competition allegedly committed voter fraud by bribing people with free sandwiches. So without further ado, tonight, I'd like to formally present the Best Supporting Chicken Sandwich Award to Pinky Winchester. My life is a recipe of spices, seasonings, flavors from cooks and chefs of past generations. When I end my day at Pinky and Red's, I scan the room and I see my ancestors' photos. Some date back to the 1800s, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. <laughs> Good, bad, and the ugly. Because my family's recipes survive the storm. Chef Pinky and her daughter are La Cocina graduates and the owners of Pinky and Red's, a chicken sandwich shop located on the UC Berkeley campus. I got to visit their restaurant, where students relax and enjoy the recipes she grew up cooking with her mother and father. The walls are even covered with scribbled messages from students praising her cooking. 
Wow, that's a lot. I wow, that's know. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you the one that stands out. Where is it? Pinky said a girl came in one day and wrote a message for her boyfriend to find. And she said, I eat there all the time and I've written a message for you on this wall. <laughs> and what, what I have for you, you cannot get it until you go there and eat and find the message on huh. the wall. I felt so bad for him. He looked like he wanted to cry. <laughs> so what was it? Hey, Connors, comment? loves whatever her name was. See? That's all she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I am so mad at her. I said, but then you know what? I shouldn't be. Because she made, she forced you to come to Pinky and Reds. I don't know. I'm still kind of mad at Me, her. I was so mad at her. Pinky was grateful to talk at the spoken word night and credits the organization for her success. I didn't think it was going to be that dynamic for me, you know. I just thought, I'm participating, I'm going to go up here, they're going to eat the food, I'm going to tell my story. But it really was overwhelming. But at the same time, it was so inspiring to see how so many people really welcomed me there and thought the food was so delicious. It, it was awesome. That was Ricky Rodas uh, reporting on uh, La Cocina event. And that actually does it for Listen Local, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Um, and uh, thank you, you know, uh, Aleka for, for being here. She she walked off she walked off the set. But it was uh, um, it was great and uh, stay tuned. Stay tuned for next week. Thank you so much. Bye. When I'm far from home Don't call me on the phone To tell me you're alone It seems